Ghost Ship Radio Network. Sail onward. What's up, folks? Welcome to episode 21 of the Adjacent Hex Podcast. My name is Zach. And leveling the playing field is Doug. How's it going, man? It is going pretty well. Uh, it's finally fall. Finally, right? It doesn't feel like it. I think like for two or three episodes in a row, I've I've mentioned how excited I am. No, I agree, though. It doesn't feel like it because it hit 90 degrees the last two days. Two days? Um, I thought it was three. Maybe I'm just off base, but It was high 80s. Gravy, it's been hot uh, Yeah, I, I had to run my air conditioner this week. Yeah. I'm sitting in my my streaming office right now, sweating. No, I'm downstairs, so it's always nice and cool down here. Oh, lucky. It is supposed to cool down this weekend, though. Oh, thank goodness. So we'll get we'll get some of that cool cool fall weather. Yeah, just in time too. Just in time. So what have you played uh, this month, buddy? Oh, um, okay. So I'm gonna talk about it. I'm gonna jump right in. Yeah. Because I've mentioned it quite a few times, but I finally got a game of 10 candles oh yeah we've been talking about that for a while yeah our friends anthony and Corey and jess uh jess Corey's wife not jesse my wife <laughs> right uh, important distinction played there. yeah uh so they came over uh i set up downstairs um bought a bowl at the the home depot mm-hmm. on the cheap had a bunch of spare dice lying around because we needed those spare dice um Got everything we needed. Got my fire extinguisher just in case, and uh, gotta be prepared. Gotta be prepared. And I think it went really, really well. And I'm really excited to play again. And Anthony told me he's excited to play again. So I mentioned in the last episode that I've got like a dozen volunteers. And um, since Anthony and I have gone off and sort of talked about our experience, I think that number has actually grown. So I don't play a lot of RPGs. Right. Uh, uh, we talked about that last time too, how you play kind of more campaign-ish and I, I play a handful of one-shots. Mm-hmm. But this was a very different RPG experience for me because I was the GM, but the mm-hmm. game is really much more collaborative mm-hmm. in the overall sense of what happens in the story than most RP or any possibly RPG I've played. So I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but in, in 10 Candles, you're rolling the dice. The players are rolling dice to see if they succeed. Mm-hmm. And the GM is rolling a dice against them, but it's not to see whether they succeed or fail. If the GM equals or beats the number of sixes rolls, the GM gets narrative rights. If they don't, the players get narrative rights. Interesting. Yeah. So, well, it ended up being really interesting because uh, it got, as the game goes on, the players lose more and more of their dice and the GM gains more and more of his or her dice. And uh, the idea being the GM is going to gain more and more control as the game goes on. Uh Uh-huh. Did not happen that way at all in our game. I, I swear, I was rolling like seven dice to their one, two, or three. And coming up completely blank on sixes. Oops. Over and over and over again. It got to the point where uh, the story was they were going over a bridge through the woods trying to get to this military base. And Mm -hmm. sort of depending on how the story plays out, you just 
make it up. Sometimes the base is destroyed. In this case, it was a fully functioning military base that ended up getting overrun by our creatures, which were pretty interesting. But what happened is they jump in a military truck, they drive away, and they're running low on gas. And I managed to get them to this sort of compound. Mm -hmm. And I was going to have the big finale of the game take place in this compound. But what ended up happening, or what ended up happening, because (laughs) they gained narrative rights, was they filled up their fuel truck, blew the building up, and drove away. All right. So I had to completely rewrite sort of my final scene, where it was going to take place, how they were going to get there, because I was just really wanted to win those narrative rights and couldn't do it. Um, But it was an amazing experience. It's really interesting because you don't even know what the monster is going in. Uh, The person to the right of the GM actually writes a trait of the monster. Huh. And then hands it to that person. I mean, I guess you could have some idea, but a big part of this game is the spontaneity. Uh, And I had no idea. But Anthony wrote... Something about how when the creatures go by, when they go by, things wither. Yeah. And I thought, oh, we're going through the woods. That'll be really interesting. And then instead, I changed it very early on in the game to these creatures that were kind of ghoulish. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't really be killed, but they were coming in and out of places through doors. Did you ever read the book House of Leaves? Uh if I did, it was a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, I think if you did, you'd know, because it's, it's a beast of a book. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, uh, it's, it's a monster. So in House of Leaves, they find a door on the edge of the wall, and they open that door, and it leads into a whole other place, but that place doesn't exist outside of the house. Huh. So, so like, you're standing in your living room. One day, there's a brand new door. You open that door, and there's a hallway into what should be outside. Yep. So the monsters were using those kind of doors to sort of get around. Um, and, but in, in House of Leaves, I borrowed, I borrowed the doors and another aspect. I actually added a mechanic to the game. Mm-hmm. In House of Leaves, if you're in like the unexplored area, if you're not concentrating on things, they would disappear. So like explorers would go in with their gear and then they'd notice the zipper on their jacket was missing or their pockets were falling apart. Huh. Uh, so what I did was I occasionally would have the players, when they had a, a close brush with the creatures, would have to roll a die. And on a one, I would destroy a light source mm-hmm. because light was the creature's only weakness. And on a six, I would let them pick. All right. That uh, makes sense. And then in between, like I kind of based the severity. So anyway, it was uh, j- just a long story short. They had this whole huge thing, and the game ends when the last candle goes out. And because with one die, they just kept succeeding. (laughs) Every roll with one die was a six. But then it got to the point where we'd almost got to a a point in the story where we couldn't get much further. Right. And so every time you get into the darkness, very bad things. So the darkness is sort of chasing them. Yeah. Anthony opens a door into more darkness. The last candle just happened to go out on its own right there. So I narrated ending where they're sort of overcome by the darkness. And uh, because it's the way every game of Ten Candles ends, nobody survives. Uh, So really, really unique experience, really interesting. Uh, Can't wait to get it to the table again. 
That's awesome, man. Like, I've also, um, I don't know how much I can talk about this, but I've also been playing uh, a new RPG, uh, both new to me and new to the world, um, and I've been DMing it myself, and it's similar, like, it's very, co- it's extremely cooperative, um, more so than I've ever seen out of an RPG, and I'm actually adapting a scenario from a totally different game to fit it. Um, and it's it's going surprisingly well, and I, like I find myself as the GM cheering for the players. That's nice. Yeah, that's it, fun. It really that's connects you with, you with your player base. Yeah, well, th- this game is similar in that regard. It's like because I'm not telling a story that they're reacting to. Right. In a way, I am, but we're all sort of telling that story together. Yeah. Great experience. It it really is. What else? What else? Real quick. So I got to play surprise surprise another game of Zombie Side. <laughs> That's been your jam lately. Yeah. Well, the last last episode I talked about that one that that quest that I was just moving on from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that, and Tom and I played a two player game, each controlling three heroes. Yep. And we it, so it was quest five, and we breezed through it. Hmm. Like no game of Zombie Side I have played before just every time we flipped over a token it happened to be exactly what we needed every time we got an item it happened to be exactly what we needed (laughs) uh and he was saying tom has played this game way more than i have he's had it for a long time and Mm -hmm. he said he's never coasted through a game the way he and i did really unique zombie side experience Uh, that's all i'm gonna say about it just because i talk about that game a lot uh (laughs) eventually i'll have to talk about green horde (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's one of those games that has so much going on, so much content, yeah. so yeah. much available that honestly, we could probably if we wanted to, we probably won't, but we could probably do a whole episode just on Zombicide and just how, you know, different one game is to another. Well, and it's kind of like it's kind of like your Arkham Horror. You get that Arkham Horror game every month. Mhm. Like I've I've been getting a lot of zombie side and I, and I agree like each time I play I feel like I come away with some different experience. Yeah. Another game I just want to drop in real quick because I've talked about it before, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to play a game called Inish. Yeah, you mentioned that a, yeah. Uh, a, yeah. a little while back. We've we've talked about that before, but uh, I, I think I made a comment the first time about how a lot of reviewers say people don't fully get it their first time through. I got to play a game this time where everybody at the table had played the game before uh-huh. except for one person. And okay. it was surprising how noticeable it was that they were missing certain things that the rest of us knew about. Um, just like, like I think they focused a little bit too much. That person focused a bit too much on combat mm-hmm. because you can battle in Inish, but it's not really a war game, and they they seem to miss the importance of just keeping one person alive in an area, even if you don't control it. Yeah, I mean, area control games are tricky like that, area control games in in particular. I played a lot of them at Gen Con, uh, a lot of one in particular that we've talked about a bunch, that's Fate of the Elder Gods, Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm just, I was noticing that the, the, my, my strategy is to just you know, go for a couple of areas and go nuts. Okay. Whereas that may not be the best strategy all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm just as guilty as, as your buddy of overlooking that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Like, I almost felt bad. Like, there was at one point where I actually made a comment. I was trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, he said, oh, I don't think I played poorly. I think blah, blah, blah. But it, it was pretty clear. Like, at one point, he had gone up. Uh, so Jesse had controlled the mountaintop, mm-hmm. which is really hard to attack. And he had really weakened her army. And he made a comment about so that I could sweep in and take it over because it was better for me to have it than for her because yeah. it was closer to her endgame condition. But I just said, there's no reason for me to do that. I don't need it. I don't want it. And I just left it alone. Well, from the sounds of things, it would have been out of your way to even bother with it. Yeah, it would have been. I, I mean, I had territory adjacent to it, uh-huh. but it would have been a very bad use of resources and time. And I just think, I just think, you know, and then even that person, when he would battle, would battle literally to the death. Yeah. Go into a fight, not be able to win it, and instead of quitting the fight, when other people were willing to, just going to the end and really, really doing more harm than good to his own own game. Um, but it was interesting because I, I think, you know, having played a couple of games now, this was the first time I got to play as a more experienced player against a brand new player, and I absolutely see what the other reviewers are talking about. People talk about the barrier to entry in our hobby a, a lot. Recently, uh, bottom of the ninth club clubhouse sorry, bottom of the ninth clubhouse came in, and I was my dad and I were unboxing it. It's one of my dad's favorite games, and he was and I also had Fade of the Elder Gods with me. He's like, and he was looking at the rule book, and he's like. There is no way that I could sit down and and learn this game. And I started thinking about that. And I'm like, well, I I mean, I could easily teach my dad how to play that game. Elder guys you're talking about. Correct. Um, You know, I I taught him how to play Bottom of the Ninth. It's not an easy game. I mean, for us, sure. It's miserably simple. But for someone who is not as invested in the hobby, Mm. even Bottom of the Ninth is a tricky thing to get into. Get it, get in on, and I think you know a lot of learning a game comes from playing with players who are better than you, and learning the quote unquote correct ways to play the game by making the incorrect plays. You know, two comments. Yeah. On that, first of all, I want to give a shout out to my buddy Thomas uh, and his new wife Megan, who just got married last Friday. Yep. At the time of recording. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because what you just said reminded me of a conversation we had at that table. Uh, So obviously a bunch of us are very big board gamers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're sitting around and it's me and Jesse and Rob and Inball, all gamers. Uh, A couple of other people that I didn't really know, but they were clearly gamers. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of people who weren't gamers. And uh, Jesse was talking to them we, I mean, we all were, but they were talking about one of the people at the table, a non-gamer, mentioned how the hobby games seem so, I'm going to use the word intimidating, mm-hmm. even though yep. I don't think she did, but just kind of what you're talking about. Like, you, if you had never played anything above Monopoly or Checkers or something. <laughs> or and the $6 you, million dollar man. Hey! Or six million. <laughs> and, and you sat down and opened up. Uh, a game like that it, it could be very intimidating jesse actually said that to to the lady at our table she said that when jesse started out 
she would get really intimidated. But now she's to the point where if I go, oh, it's a drafting game or a deck building game or, a, you know, whatever your category is. It's a co-op. It's a, a worker placement game. It's a tile laying game. It's an area control game. There's automatically a set of assumptions that sort of come with that. Right. And I think our ability to suss that out just by even glancing at a game Mm -hmm. is it takes some time to develop that as a strategy. You know, I can wander around Gen Con now as packed as it is, as many games as are going on, and I can be like, okay, I know what I'm looking for. I know I want A, B, C, and D, and I don't want E. Um, More Mm -hmm. specifically, I know I can look for a game like uh, Epic Roll, which is a brand new one that uh, I picked up at Gen Con. What is that one? It, it's a like a cooperative dice rolling sort of press your... Yeah, it, it is a press your luck game. Um, okay. That it works... It, it's, it's a medieval fantasy, very basic concept, but you move through uh, one villain at a time and, and, try and try and fight to the top, basically. Okay. Um, and I was like, okay, this is simple. It's a dice rolling game. You get the the nice uh, aesthetic feel of of dice in your hand, as well as the uh, audiological sensory input of of the dice hitting the box. You roll the dice right into the box, so there's no mess. Um, <laughs> and I was like, this is the kind of thing that I could sit down with Katie and be like, Katie, I've got a, a simple little dice game for us. And even Katie, who's not super into gaming, would be able to identify some basic motions and basic strategies that she's going to need to employ. Right, things she said before. It's like when I tried to teach Arctic Scavengers to somebody who's played Dominion. Yep. It's the easiest thing in the world. Right. Same with Star Realms or um, the. I, I got to take a look at the Scott Pilgrim deck building game that's coming out very soon. Mm. Same idea someone who's into that kind of thing or who has seen that kind of thing before is going to be able to pick right up on that to some extent. Obviously, there's going to be nuances that are going to be different. Yeah, and, and that's that's a good point because the guy I played Inish with is a gamer. Mm-hmm. He's been playing games, you know, since high school, since college. He's been playing games for a long, long time now. Uh, there was nothing in that game in particular that was something he couldn't or hasn't seen sort of somewhere before but not having seen them in that game not knowing the cards that could come up not really getting the the full flavor right uh that's where the experience of having played that particular game really really put me over the edge or well i ended up winning that game so i said me but all of the players who had played before i think yeah, uh, but it doesn't even have to be a complicated game like that. I, you brought over Laser Riders. Yeah, uh, a while back, and we had a ball, and we even had to uh, send a text message because I tried to cut you off in the most uh, just dangerous, <laughs> exciting move ever. Uh, I didn't even realize that the game sort of depended on that move. Yeah, um, right. But I think even. It's hard to explain. I felt a little bit, because you had played that game a few times uh, when you brought your copy of Laser Riders over. Yeah. Uh, I felt a little like a fish out of water for the first couple of turns. You know what I mean? Even just sort of building a strategy on kind of circling back and taking out somebody else's points. Um, kind of setting your track uh, for a big turn, deliberately crashing 
so that you can restart somewhere. Like these are just strategies that you kind of knew having played the game Yeah. that I kind of, you know, I picked up on as the game went out, but it was a probably a few turns too late. Well, we also, I mean, you and I have gotten to the point now where if we're learning a game, we don't super expect to win and we kind of just take it or I I personally just kind of take it easy and focus really on learning how the game works Mm. and that came in significantly handy this uh, or recently when I was introduced to a game called Railways of Germany okay what it's a it sounds like a train game oh it sure is we have a guy who comes (laughs) into the store and he comes in like once a month usually for board game day and he always brings a train game with him and sorry Corey, but they're usually better than ticket to ride <laughs> uh, for those who don't know our friend Corey insists and he has repeatedly bet his conductor's hat on it that ticket to ride is the best train based board game there is respectfully i disagree uh, all right we're gonna have to do a an episode we're gonna have to get our hands on every train game we can Oh, that sounds abominable. We'll we'll do a we'll do a. Tra- I'm not a train game guy at all. No, me. Uh, the only one I've ever played is Ticket to Ride. I I like Ticket to Ride, um, just because it's it, it, once again it's simple. It was easy to teach card drawing and, yeah, and placing yeah. models. I was very it was very easy for me to pitch that to Katie. So we we sat we were able to sit down and play that. But so what's Railways of Germany? Not Ticket to Ride map. Apparently. It is, yeah, it's a semi complex economy game. Where you have to, you're one of several different investors, and you have to invest in these uh, railway companies, and then based on how they expand and how you choose to expand your influence, you get you reap rewards from those companies every time they reach a new city in Germany. Okay. And I was just kind of sitting back and making pl- and oh, and the the, um, the biggest part is you don't always get a turn every round. Mm. So there's a tracker. It's kind of a progress tracker, but it doesn't actually pay into, or it doesn't play into the victory points at all. Okay. Um, depending on one thing or another, I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to that particular <laughs> detail. The first place, or whoever's the farthest ahead on the track puts one token into a bag. The second place puts two, third place three, fourth place four. And then four to- or tokens equal to the number of players are drawn out of the bag. So the more, or the ah. further behind you are on the track, the more likely it is your your turn will yield you an action. So some players are getting multiple actions? Yes. As a matter of fact, okay. one of the guys I was playing with, Nathan, repeatedly got two or three actions every round. Wow. Which was good on the one hand, because he's doing something, but bad on the other, because he wasn't forcing anybody else to do things for him. Mm. Which, as you, as you collect influence around the board... Sometimes you, or oftentimes you have stock in, or two players have stock in the same company. Okay. Um, okay. So one place, one player does something with that company, and the other player gets the reward for it. Okay. Um, so I was just chilling. I was working on something else. I think I was sorting cards at the time, um, and I was just making some plays to see what would happen. I was totally being the wild card. I was paying enough attention to, to like actually pose a threat in the game. And I ended up winning, which was really interesting to me because I was like, okay, one player sitting here has played this a bunch and really knows what he's doing. Hmm. Another player, our friend Jack, knows games well enough to know what he's doing. Right. And Nathan and I have no idea what we're doing at all. And you just kind of fell just, into a win. Yep. I just kind of rode a curve and, and went with it. <laughs> 
so that tells me that a lot of the a lot of that experience level comes from how well was the game explained to us in the first place with emphasis on the important parts. Yeah, well, the important parts thing actually is an interesting thing to say because um, so we've talked about gameland games a lot. Mm-hmm. Actually, this kind of this kind of plays into both what you said and and is sort of on point major topic wise. Yeah. So um, our copies of Tiny Epic Quest finally came. Well, why sure do I always say finally? When it comes to Kickstarter, well, I mean, when you back something that long ago, and this is a topic for yeah, another day, certainly. But, but when you like, I've I've got one outstanding right now that I know isn't coming until next year, and I'm yeah. like, good gravy, but, I want this game right now. And I I, I get that, and that's probably that is where I'm coming from because uh, Tiny Epic Quest actually got to my doorstep ahead of schedule. They did an yep. amazing job. They sure um, did. That that wasn't. So I didn't mean to say finally. The point is, the game came, I got to play it. Uh, and so, I played with Tom. Uh, we played two-player games. I haven't got to play more than two players yet. Uh, but really interesting, because you mentioned something about the important part. In Tiny Epic Quest, you can work on a number of different things. You can work on a dungeon. You can work on killing goblins. You can work on... Uh, learning some new magic. Mm-hmm. There's various things you can do. And you have three meeples and four movement. And very quickly in the first game, we realized that we were both making a mistake by there are mushroom grottos in the game. And if you put a meeple there, something happens right away. Mm-hmm. So a good strategy is to use one of those and then use that meeple and get to a dungeon or to fight goblins or whatever but the first game we were kind of leaving that third meeple out of something useful in the night phase so i should take a step back tiny epic quest is played in two phases the first phase you move your characters around the second phase is where like you battle monsters you explore dungeons you do all the fun stuff okay yep but we were leaving a guy in a sort of useless spot during the first day. And it was sort of, we weren't focusing on the important parts of the game, mm-hmm. which are completing those quests, advancing tracks, whatever. Uh, we adjusted those, those uh, that play style relatively quickly. Like I said, we picked it up in the first game, but it was very obvious in our scores. I won the first game, I think something like 19 to 12. Uh-huh. We didn't know this at the time, but our not terribly high scoring, the next game I won, the final score was 50 to 49. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so we went from the teens to 50s and high 40s in one game, and the only real difference was, kind of like you pointed out, focusing on the important part. Uh, but if I didn't point that out to somebody starting... Like, I, if I teach that game to somebody, I'm definitely going to make sure that they know that moving forward. Uh, because even that tiny little detail, having that experience, uh, seeing the different scores between utilizing all your meeples and not, that's the difference between a 50 and a 12-point game. You know, there's a significant difference between being taught a game and picking up on mm-hmm. the important details and teaching yourself a game and trying to identify mm-hmm. the important details. I played the brand new game from Plaid Hat in, set in the Dead of Winter Raxin. universe. It's called Raxon. Uh, it's about the ph- pharmaceutical company that ostensibly, allegedly triggered the zombie apocalypse. 
And I, this was the first time I've ever played a game solo. Now, playing a game solo, I imagine, is some is a topic you and I will have to tackle at some point. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. What I want to mention is, I don't know what the most mm. important thing to be doing is. My strategy in this case, I mean, the objective of the game is to try and evacuate all the survivor unbitten civilians from from the, the town in which Dead of Winter takes place and get them successfully to the colony. Uh, I was working as Gabriel Diaz, the fire firefighter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now in a solo game of Raxon, you can change your character every round. Okay. Because I was learning how to do it, I didn't bother with that. And I think that caused me to be toast. Because I lost very fast. Like when you change your character because this character's ability is more useful this round? and Right. Is that why? Okay. Yes. But I didn't, I didn't identify quickly that the difference in ability from character to character was that significant. I okay. thought they were more or less the same thing. Okay. So I learned that, but I can't confirm it for sure. Well, that makes sense. I mean, you'll learn it when you play more. Because you, you bought Raxon, right? I did. Okay. It was uh, th- They did a really interesting... I, I want to touch on this for a second. They did a really interesting marketing thing with Raxon. Um, Raxon. When I was at Gen Con and picked up some of the new Plaid Hat products, um, they gave me a little business card inside one of the products. And it said Raxon Pharmaceuticals Crisis Management Unit. <laughs> and they gave me a, a code to enter on their website, allowing me to order Raxon early before it was released. Oh, that's cool. Okay. And I was like, that's a really neat marketing ploy. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> was I able to identify that it was a ploy? Absolutely. Right, Did I have right. to order it? No. But I was like, that's for the podcast. I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, and it's, I was surprised. It's, it's a really neat game. I, I look forward to playing more of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to giving that one a try. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get it to the table this weekend. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, too, because in that game, it sounds like you you kind of noticed that switching your characters and their different abilities is going to help. But one game I've actually been playing a lot of lately, I don't know why, I've just really gotten back into it. I've been playing a lot of chess. Hey, good classic. Yeah, just an oldie but a goodie. But, But that's an interesting one, because everybody can know the moves, right? There's only a handful of different pieces but i can sit down you know a grandmaster the the best the best chess player in the world what's like gary kasparov or something like that i I think it's carl magnus now is the world champ or something like that i'm not exactly sure but you know what i mean if i had never played a game of chess before he could come show me all of the moves teach Mm -hmm. me how to castle teach me empassant capture teach me all that stuff and then we could play and in theory, I know everything you can do movement-wise, but just there's so much to do that a Grandmaster would absolutely destroy me. E- even though I know all of the moves, I know the moves, I know what the pieces do, uh, the experience there. I mean, I think that is one of the most extreme examples yeah. of an experienced player versus a non, just, just cleaning up. But it's an interesting one nonetheless because the gameplay itself is so simple. It's interesting to me that the simple, the simplest games to teach someone, like chess, are often the most complicated to truly master. And I think that's what you're trying to get across. Yeah, and, and, and I think they use that as a marketing point. On a lot of games, you'll see, you know, learn in five minutes master it in a lifetime type right 
Santorini is the same idea. Actually, uh, I'm, I'm really excited that you mentioned Santorini because they have one, or the, the makers of Santorini uh, sold me a product at Gen Con called Super Motherload. Okay. Which is a, it's like a drilling, I mean, the, the video game Motherload is a clear influence here, whether they want to admit it or not. <laughs> um, basically, your, your job is to drill down into the earth, and there are modular layers of earth um, that obviously change every game, uh, and you collect artifacts and resources to upgrade yourself and uh, buy employees and, and cool things like that. And the objective is to capture so many artifacts. You can set it up very quickly. I can probably explain how to play it in a matter of minutes, but actually figuring out what order to hire uh, hire employees, which directions to go with your drill, which upgrades to buy, that takes a lot of effort to figure out because no two drills are going to be, or no, no two games are going to be the same. And you have to base that decision on how the board lays out, mm -hmm. what your opponents are doing. All sorts of other stuff. I'm looking at the board right now. I looked it up on BGG. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really cool board. It really is. Uh, really interesting. Like the top is like a bunch of equipment, and then I see the tiles that you're talking about. It's like a four by four by eight grid. Yeah, yeah. That's it's cool. It's cool looking. It really is, and uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, a game we talked about a while back, the, the Battle at Kemble's Cascade. Yeah, which is a um, it, it feels very much like a top-down Ikaruga-style um, shooter for uh, as, as a video game. Mm -hmm. But the cards come out in a random order, and you and your teammate, I guess, have to pick the order in which to go after them based on what you have available. One of the things that makes games complicated and difficult to teach and difficult to pick up and make the right decisions in is that variance in, in the way things happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's I get, yeah all that's to be said about that. Sure, um, sure. But another prime example of that is, is the game Codenames, which is a, a game that you and I both particularly enjoy, mostly for its simplicity, I think. Yeah, that's an interesting one to bring up, uh, the game that I have to buy right now. <laughs> that will forever be a joke for us. So I, we, you and I have played a number of games of the basic Codenames game. It's fun. It, it's simple. It gets the job done. You could teach it to pretty much anybody, but I also, uh, at, at Gen Con, I was able to play the brand new Disney version of Codenames, which not only has words on one side of the tiles, but it also has pictures. Ah, okay. There is another, ver there's a there's a new version of Codenames out that is all pictures. Yep, Codenames pictures. So it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like the Disney is sort of a combination of the two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, USAopoly is releasing both Disney and Marvel codenames coming up very okay. soon. And oh, no, we're getting into <laughs> I wonder that. who paid for those licenses. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mickey Mouse. And you're not allowed to say any word that's part of the title. So, like, if I saw a tile of Aladdin, I would have to... I could say something like Street Rat, but I wouldn't be allowed to say Jafar. You couldn't say Jafar? So not just the title, so characters and it's it, the, the rule is really kind of vague, but I, I guess that's fine. Could if, if, if I was, like, the Lion King came up, could I say Pride Rock, or would that be too... See, it's, once again, it's, it's she, she explained it as a gray area, and I'm like, I, it really depends on who you're playing with. Okay. If I were playing with 
Katie, who knows Disney almost as well as I do, if not better, mm. saying something like Pride Rock would be a dead giveaway for her. Right. But maybe playing with my brother, who has forgotten more about Disney than I think he'd care to admit, <laughs> you know, saying something like that might not be a, as dead give, as dead a giveaway. I think it takes from the original codenames feel of trying okay. to put a code word together to represent several tiles. Several things, yeah. Um, and really throws a wrench at that because you, you, you are then forced to know who your partners are and who you're playing with. I didn't know anybody I was playing with. I just kind of showed up at the booth hoping right. to get a promo for the Harry Potter board game. Didn't get it, by the way. Oh. And uh, <laughs> and just jumped into a game of Disney Codenames with people that I... Uh, my partner was very clear to me, or he, he, he told me at the outset, I don't know anything about Disney. And I'm like, oh, great, here we go. Turns out he knew a lot more than he thought, but... Mm. Well, in that case, too, though, at least I don't know about the Disney one, but the original Codenames, I know the first time we ever played it, you and I played on a team. Yes. And it was a bit of an advantage because that's interesting that you bring that one up because the experience there isn't in the game itself as far as the mechanics. It's sort of knowing your teammates. We might have like inside jokes and just knowing the people you're playing with might be able to kind of give you that edge right. to, so they get the clues you're trying to. I will say this though. I played, I played a six player game a couple, and this was a while back mm -hmm. and these people just were not on the same page. And when Oof. the game was over, listening to them try to explain, uh, listen to the clue giver, try to explain the connections between, you know, an apple, an airplane, and, you know, my left foot. Just, it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was so funny to watch. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's experience, but not even necessarily in the game, but more yeah. with in the people yeah it's experience in a completely with. different way it's experience yeah. with in this case in my case pop culture yeah yeah that's another one too mm -hmm. so i was thinking i got to talk about this game mm -hmm. uh, but it actually it's kind of the perfect counter to chess because chess having the experience in the game matters a whole whole bunch uh this next game that i'm going to talk about i want to talk about because i've mentioned it on the show a bunch of times it came, I've played it, Endangered Orphans of Condyle Cove. Oh, yeah, that one, you and I played that together. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, so I just want to point out, though, that, okay, so I played it a couple times. I played you, we played a two-player game, mm -hmm. kind of got to see the cards, how they played out. Yep. Uh, played Tom, two-player game, kind of got to see the cards, how they played out. Then I jumped into a four-player game. And I played two four-player games back-to-back -back uh -huh. and didn't win either. Didn't even come close to winning either. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe a lot more games would have mattered. Um, but in this example, my experience did not help at all. So, I just want to talk about Endangered Orphans real quick. Yeah. Because I backed it on Kickstarter a while back. I've mentioned it a few times on the show. Um, so, basically... Uh, I'll talk about the four-player game. So you start... It was really interesting playing between a two and a four. There's always a town center, which is really bad, and you can draw... If you land there, you draw an act of desperation card, uh, which is one of six cards, 
and one of them is instant death and the rest are all very helpful to you uh so you really only go there if you're desperate which is why they're called the acts of desperation card but from there you form a little cross and then uh, as the game goes on you're sort of building out and building this little town it's very interesting playing a two versus a four player game because the two player games like i played with you and tom it's very much about hand management because you can only have up to four cards Mm -hmm. and you have to draw two every turn so in the two player game you end up kind of trying to pick the most useful cards at the time and hope you don't get rid of something super valuable and hope you don't get burned too bad uh the four player game on the other hand because there's more players and they're scattered a lot of these cards are very location specific and i found anyway that i was able to play my hand much more easily instead of becoming a hand management really becomes a take that i mean the games always take that but you really have a lot more targets And there are few things more fun than having a card that just screws over everybody on a location and having all three other players on that location. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It it can be absolutely brutal. A really interesting thing happened, though. The first first four-player game, I played two back-to-back. took about 45 minutes. People kept... uh, The playtime on the game is about... It says 10 to 30 minutes. The first game took about 45 minutes because... Mm -hmm. Uh, we were kind of trying to keep everybody neutral and we were also getting cards that were allowing us to shuffle things back into our deck uh-huh. uh, all this stuff going on the second game went by so quickly the game was really over the turn after i realized holy cow how is this game almost over already huh because the two ways to die in that game are to one get eaten by the boogeyman when you draw that uh, active desperation boogeyman card, the instant death. The other way is to run out of options, which are your cards. So if you ever have to go draw cards and you can't do it, game over. I swear, like, I'd only had a few turns, and I looked down, and my deck was so thin already. (laughs) Completely different from the first game. Uh, My experience did not help me at all. A lot of fun, the game, but it was kind of surprising because if you had sat down... To play that for the first time ever, two very, very drastic uh, experiences, very different from each other. And when you go to teach a game like that, like trying to, like when I go to teach Raxon, for example, to back up, mm-hmm. to, to to backtrack a little bit, and when you go to tre- teach uh, Orphans, and or if my friend Matt goes to teach Railways of Germany again. You take with you all those the all those experiences you bring from a different from from having a different number of players at the table each time. Yeah. But it sort of muddles in your head which details are going to be the most important to teach in that particular scenario. I know when I'm demoing things on a show floor, I almost have to know that game well enough to change what I'm emphasizing every single demo. Mm. Which is and and the same would hold true whenever I'm you know, teaching you something or teaching Eric or, or, or teaching Katie something like it changes literally every time you sit down. Right. And the ability to come to the table with as, as much knowledge as you possibly can is just hands down the most valuable thing you can bring to the table. I would say. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, it's always easier to teach a game when you know it that well. Yeah. Um, 
unfortunately, half the time, or more than half the time, <laughs> we're trying to teach games that... Call to the new. We Yeah, exactly. We just don't know because, I mean, yeah. you and I, our game playing habits have changed significantly since we started this show. We, we oftentimes will sit down and try to learn games that specifically fall into our main topic for the month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that requires us, on some level, to try and figure these things out for ourselves, which creates a scenario where we're often like what we do in the game is often the wrong decision which coming from a magic the gathering and warhammer background as i do that's kind of weird i'll be honest in what sense well like we, we emphasize for ourselves the wrong thing like make a play the game from a perspective that maybe is not the most ideal path to victory does that make sense yeah uh i don't know i'd need an example <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm just saying, generally, if I'm I'm looking for games for a topic, it's a little more general than, like, a specific mechanic or style of play that would force me to misplay. I make misplays all the time. I I think what I'm saying is we we have to be willing to make, you and I have to be willing to make those misplays and learn from it. As opposed to someone who's, like, super invested in a game, like chess, and willing to play at a world championship level, they've thrown themselves almost exclusively into that game. Now, some of them will play games that are similar to learn something that they can take back to um, to their main product. I've heard the magic and poker um, analogy a lot. Like, you can learn things from poker and take that back to magic. Um, I personally don't understand it myself because i don't competitively play either of those games um but you know we're we're playing a rolling catalog every single month and it's kind of nice when we do finally get to get to sit down and play a game for a second or third or fourth time or more i see what and bring you're something saying back. we don't necessarily always have an immediate chance to learn from our mistake and apply it to the next game Exactly. That's that's exactly okay. what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. I follow that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. And I, I, I think that's more... That is a big thing with the call to the new. It is something we constantly struggle with. Uh, that's... You know, that'd be, a, that'd be a good two... I just thought of two topics for future episodes. One, Endangered Orphans of Condyle Cove. Um, my experience didn't really help because I knew there were two cards of every kind in the deck but I told that to everybody but the game is so luck based so one an episode on luck which I yep. think I've got in the topic ideas already yep. and two I don't think we've ever done an episode on Cult of the New which is kind of what you're talking about it sure is I think we tried to at one point and just didn't get there yeah anyway. let's put a pin in that because I think that'd be really interesting for another another episode well we will definitely have to do that I'm going to add it to the to the topic ideas page right now. Well, anyway, while, uh, while Doug's <laughs> adding that to the topics page, for now, if you want to check out some of the older episodes of the show, <laughs> head on over to ghostshipradio.com to see if some of our other work, facebook.com forward slash another letdown is the place to be for that. Adjacent Hex is published monthly by Ghost Ship Radio and is produced by Another Letdown Media. If you have some feedback for us, you can reach us on Twitter. My name is at D-E-N-O-N-C-Z-D, and Doug is at I-T-S-O-K-T-O-L-A-F-F. 
and our hashtag is hashtag adjacent hex. If you liked what you hear, make sure to subscribe and share with your friends on social media and in person. If you have something a bit longer to say to us, feel free to send us an email at theadjacenthex at gmail.com. From all of us here at Adjacent Hex, happy gaming, and we will talk to you next month. I've got half a mind to take my shirt right off. Boy, oh boy. <laughs>